welcome to Not Safe for Publication special, which will highlight the lighter side of humanities research. To warm you up in this weather and help you fight the winter blues, we have collected here some of the funniest anecdotes that our guests told us and which deserve to be heard again. Not all of them, so that we can have another special at some point in the future, but some of them. If you like the guest and want to hear their entire episode, I will leave links in the description. Please enjoy. So I was co-writing a bit of research with a friend of mine on anarchist movements. And we were, I think this would have been about 2014, we were on a big protest in London. Things were on the trade union TUC demos with a bunch of anarchists who we were observing while they were doing their thing. And we then got, well not quite arrested by the police. And when I say not quite arrested, they basically were doing a tactic where they were sort of grabbing groups of activists and then just temporarily detaining them to try and de-escalate the situation. So they didn't raise the riots or anything. We were just kettled, grabbed, dragged into the back of a police van, and then the police just left. And I was there thinking, have I been arrested? If so, this is very underwhelming. <laughs> um, so after about half an hour, we're all sitting there thinking, well, what do we do now? At which point the door of the police van opens. And I kid you not, a man dressed as a clown sticks his head in. <laughs> now, it turns out that these clowns, as they politely explain, are from Lambeth Militant Surrealist Society. Uh, and they've been going around unarresting people. And they ask very politely, would we like to be unarrested? <laughs> At which point, they so we had our hands kind of cable tied by the police. They came in, they had scissors, they were cutting us loose. They opened the, the door of the van. We all legged it out. And then the police officers who detained us came back around the corner with another group. And what they would have seen was me, my colleague, and about three or four others, and a bunch of men in full-on clown costumes, fucking legging it up the street. <laughs> long shoes flying. Yeah, long shoes flapping, noses honking, and me waving politely, thinking, oh, this is not how I expected my day to go. So, yeah, I think a highlight of my entire research career, if not my entire life, was being unarrested by some clowns. Do, do we think it's too late for me to retrain as a sociologist yeah, and work it. on these surrealist <laughs> Uh, if any of the clowns are listening, cheers, guys. I never got to say thanks properly. <laughs> it's okay. You can do our, an oral history of the clowns as uh, your next project. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, they're all mimes. So it's a very challenging yeah. oral history project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are so many dig romances. And it's always funny because, like, especially on, like, more like student training digs, everyone's always sleeping in quite close quarters. So the second time I went to Cyprus, for instance, we were sleeping on the roof of this house. Just mattresses on, on the roof. That was it. And then there was this one couple and they were like, oh, where do we go to like hook up? And then <laughs> it was quite funny. And then like a couple of days later, she was like, yeah, so we tried it on a bench and it didn't really work. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> Sounds like a worse night. Oh, actually, they, so there's a reconstructed village. So it's like experimental archaeology. So some people like rebuilt these like houses and that's where people went to hook up <laughs> oh my god in like, in, like so an experimentally built, no, like think... roundhouse yeah but there's no like floor it's just mud mm, okay i was about to be like i think that's hot but i'm wrong <laughs> i just like i don't know like an empty cavernous mud house yeah but it's it's i just imagine like having sex on the floor and just be like covered in clay 
I yeah, that, I, so now I'm that, back to yeah. thinking that sounds good. <laughs> I'm a clean person. Good as your skin. <laughs> I was going to say it's like you could do like a sort of historical role. Oh play. yes, yeah, you could. Oh, oh no, oh, I've just throw down the sheet. <laughs> I, I don't know what a roundhouse is about. Oh, I've just come back from hunting a local sheep. <laughs> just into temple now, I'm horny. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, this seems like a great opportunity to... We like to ask our guests to tell us a funny story from their research. Okay, so, told you the Cypress hookup story. <laughs> I'm going to point out that that was not me. Mm, <laughs> a likely story. <laughs> it wasn't. So, when we were in Iraq, um, we had a few, like, quite a few days where we just couldn't go on site because... It had, like, rained, and because the site's, like, on a dirt track for, like, 20 minutes, like, the cars wouldn't make it there. And when we weren't on site, we weren't really allowed to leave, like, the camp, which was quite small. And it got to, like, the second or third day, and everyone was, like, getting, like, aggy and annoyed, because we're all, like, in such close quarters. Mm. So one of the directors was like, oh, let's let's have a trip into Basra, and we can go see the Basra Museum, which is lovely. So we went and there was three cars, like three pickups to take us all there. And then we had to have a police escort because that's just the rules as when we're there. And then halfway on the way to Basra, we stopped for petrol. And then it just turns out that like one car isn't really working, but we carry on anyway. And then the next thing that happens, like just we've lost a car and then everyone's freaking out because we all have to stay in the convoy. And then we realise that the car's broken down. So then we all turn around, drive down the wrong side of the road. But because the police were in front, it was fine. They were just gesturing at people to get out of the way. And then everyone had to pile out of the broken car and then pile into the current cars. But because there weren't any, there wasn't much space. So then we had to have this big reshuffle where a load of like the guys went and sat in the police car with the police, which was a pickup. And, <laughs> and sadly, I didn't get to experience this. Um, <laughs> but so there were these so there were the guys sat in the police car but then two of the police had to like stand in like the pickup bed of the truck and they when we got into Basra there was like a load of traffic and the police were just in the like in the back of the pickup just like gesturing at like cars to move out of the way because they were impatient they want we we all wanted food we were yeah, hungry yeah, yeah. they were like just gesturing at people to like get out of the way with their like AKs just like oh you know just just get out of the way and apparently in the car like, the policemen were all having, like, a jolly time, like, shouting through, like, the tannoy <laughs> on the top of the car, and they were, like, fighting over who got to do it next. It was just really one of the strangest experiences <laughs> I've ever had. And then, like, a car broke down in front of us, and one of the policemen was just like, get out the way, oh, <laughs> get out yeah. the way. It was... Over there, it's, like, a different world. The way everybody Chaos does it. stuff. It's, like absolute chaos and now i understand why my supervisor is like so laid back he's basically lying down because he's worked in the middle east for like 30 years and i'm like you can't do that if you're an anxious person or you like like things done a specific way you've just got to deal with it yeah well just like having a police convoy imagine if i had a police convoy every time i went to manchester central library <laughs> It was pretty funny. I'm coming through, guys. And the police would try and, like, make friends with us, which was really, really cute. And um, one of them, only one of the police smoked. 
and um, one day both of our lighters broke mm. and we were like absolutely inconsolable and we were like trying to like figure out how to like light a cigarette <laughs> and then he every so often like some police would just come to the site to see what was going on I think because not much was going on in the village that we were living mm. in and he brought like a lighter and then one of the policemen gave me a lighter and he was like there you go although you shouldn't smoke it's bad if you want babies <laughs> <laughs> have you still got the lighter? no it broke like Aww. two two days later <laughs> uh, when I first started doing the interviews for my last project I stupidly kind of thought that Skype would be the best way of doing certain interviews with a certain busy person. I, I'm not sure I can name her, but she's an MP, well, former MP for the Northwest. And I interviewed her in my flat and kind of read a little bit about, you know, make sure it's a neutral environment. It's kind of clear on the questions. Sound quality was absolutely fine. Video quality, great. Just kind of recording it as well. So, you know, gone through all the, the ethical and legal hoops. But one thing you need to remember and one thing that I kind of forgot. When you're interviewing someone and you wake up 20 minutes before the interview is due to start and you're in a bit of a rush so I'd, I'd kind of made myself you know, look look okay but I was sat there in what we could say top half and this is perfect because you can't see this on the radio so I could be doing exactly the same right now <laughs> um, I'm not instantly but I was wearing top half kind of shirt um, it was like a jumper shirt actually and I thought that was all fine grand but wasn't a bit of a rush so I was just sat there in my boxes so just boxes shirt but for the purposes of the interview, what this person would see on screen would look completely professional and oh, great. Oh, it's a Skype, right, yeah. okay. Skype okay. interview. Got it. <laughs> in my flat, so it wasn't, it wasn't in Nero or anywhere like that. Other coffee shops are available. Um, <laughs> anything like that. So I was I was there and halfway through, it was going great. It got very comfortable, literally. I was on my sofa um, and halfway through, stood up to go and make a cup of coffee. And <laughs> I think I realised something was up the minute I saw her face completely drop. And then I realised and then sat back down very quickly. And <laughs> so sweet. don't flash your interviewers in <laughs> boxes. That's it's the main takeaway, I think. The shame that it's not... Wait, you've got it videoed. Presumably you weren't capturing your own No. Feed, oh, um, that would have been... There's the audio of it where... You can hear me <laughs> well, yeah, 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 audibly gasp. <laughs> oh, sorry, about that. <laughs> <laughs> <Whoopsie>. Whoopsie. <laughs> Moving on. Whoopsie. <laughs> and I mean, like, like oh, there I was trying God. to like, you know, make a professional image. Like, you know, I'm Billy Big Balls. I've got this. <laughs> right, this interview. Mm. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to react to that one. Yeah. <laughs> Leave that one untouched. Well, that's exactly. So I told like um, my supervisor. And then another member of the department as well. And their reaction was exactly the same. The, ooh, <laughs> ooh. At least, yeah, you've submitted your ethical approval form already, right? That's it. <laughs> Let's hope they're not listening. <laughs> Hello, Salk Ethics community. <laughs> sure, they're listening intently. One of these kind of funny situations related specifically to vocabulary change and vocabulary use. Once I was in one of these French parent associations in Paris, and I was helping, helping two volunteers to organize documents in the association and to welcome visitors and so on, because that was part of my field work. I, for me to gain access to the association, I also showed my willingness to help them and so on, and to engage with their movement. When we were organizing the documents, one of these women came to me and said, oh, we have to leave these sheets of paper here on the table because tomorrow we have to... And then she... This whole conversation was in Esperanto. And then she told me, we have to numerig them and I said oh okay but why do you have to do it tomorrow I can do it now because for me like numerig as a word doesn't exist in Sperato basically she was improvising from French but I didn't notice it straight away 
And numerige for me would mean literally to put numbers on something. That would be like if we use this as an Esperanto word, which doesn't exist, that would what it would mean. And then I said, okay, so I have to put numbers in the pages, so I can do it now. Just give me a pen and I can do it. And then she looked at me, no, but you cannot do it now. It takes time. I said, no, just give me a pen. I said, are you planning to numerique this with a pen? I said, yeah, what do you expect me to do? I need a pen. I said, no, but we need a special machine for that. And then I said, we need a machine to add numbers to the pages? I said, yeah, of course. Do you want to copy everything? I said, no, I'm not copying anything. I'm just putting numbers. I said, what do you mean putting numbers? I said, okay, it's not working. Let's <laughs> code switch. And then we were both speaking in French. And I asked her, what do you expect me to do? I said, I want you to... And then she used the verb in French, numériser, which means to scan those documents. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, aha, okay, so, but numériser in, Eng in Esperanto is similar to English. It's scanny. It's not numerique. <laughs> I said, oh, okay, so that was French, right? I said, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> she must have been so confused. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's quite a few things which I found in my readings about different kind of characters who lived in my houses, which were quite nice stories, which cheered me up and that I'd used as much as possible. For example, I found out that the bishops that I studied uh, kept pet monkeys, which rather gruesomely they used to fight with. Wait, the monkeys would fight each other or the monkeys would fight the bishops? The monkeys would fight each other. They would release the two monkeys. Okay. It's rather gruesome, actually. They would release the monkeys and it was a big one and a little one. And they would give one of them nuts that they would put in their mouth and the other one would basically try and fight the nuts off. And this was apparently like the best entertainment that a bishop could have. And people wrote about it endlessly, about coming to visit this bishop and loving seeing the monkeys. And I was lucky enough to be involved in a TV show that happened in an excavation at one of the sites I worked on last year. Got called in beforehand to kind of advise on things they could film. And I was obviously really excited and took as many things as I could. And things like a stack of books and pictures. And, you know, these are things, these are some really interesting stories. Said about the monkeys, thinking that this was going to be the thing that people would love and it's really fascinating. And so they came to do the filming of the excavation, and it was all great. And someone was like, Caroline, we'd really like to film you. And I'm like, of course, it's my big moment to talk about monkeys. And then as it turned out, they wanted to film me down a latrine. Yeah, and it was nothing about monkeys. It was just about excavation and archaeology and, and that kind of thing. And so I'm kind of standing there, and I'm like waist deep in this medieval latrine, kind of saying, oh, how interesting, we found this piece of pottery thinking that it was going to be about the monkeys. I thought it was going to be glamorous. That it was going to be glamorous. And, but I'd like to say it's the first time that this has happened. But another one of my sites I went to go see was incredibly strange. It was a bishop's house and most of the building had been destroyed, but one of the towers had been retained and used for different things since the demolition of the rest of the house. And so I went to go check it out. And, and sometimes it's possible to contact the people who live there first to find out, you know, it's okay to go. And sometimes it just isn't possible to get that kind of information. So you doorstep people and you kind of knock on their door and explain what you're doing. And so I imagined it was going to be like that. So I rolled up and it turned out that the whole site was being used as a kind of modern ecological commune. It was really interesting. They had kind of polytunnels through all this ruined building and they were growing things. And the tower was being used as an ice store. And it was interesting. And there was one bit of the site I really wanted to look at that I'd read about and I thought it was going to be really interesting for an argument I was forming and so I go over to it 
and they were using it as a composting toilet. So I never got to do any of the archaeology on it, which to this day is, is strange and slightly irritating. And a weird one to have to write and explain in your Viva. It's, it was all very peculiar. I would have loved to talk about that tower, but unfortunately it was full of hippie poop. At the seminar, you did mention a king or potential king who had a food problem, which I thought was pretty mm, funny. Isn't that funny? <laughs> uh, so I he's called was... Yadrid. He takes over from his brother Edmund, who gets stabbed at a feast pretty metal way to become king Mm. and he dies when he's about mid-twenties i think um, maybe about 30 but he apparently had a digestive malady and it's described in a saint's life from someone who probably was present at court or knew people who were present at court because it's very descriptive and it, it to quote him it disgusted his stains but he would sort of suck his food of the juices Oh, and then throw God. it in a bucket, but you couldn't actually chew or eat. So, so my, not funny. My big question, quite funny, because I am certain that soup had been invented by them. <laughs> yeah. Bro, they, they made him do that. He was the king of the maybe it was like, a power play. <laughs> so yeah, maybe like, like, definitely like, I'm just going to suck this chicken leg, but I'm not going to eat gonna it. You're going to watch me. <laughs> Making unbroken eye contact yes. <laughs> he sucks on a chicken. <laughs> That's how I imagine all medieval. I used to only want to eat chicken legs as a kid because in my head that's like how medieval people Yeah, ate. it's like a really big old satisfying. turkey leg. Yeah, you yeah, just gnaw huge. on a turkey leg and then you throw it and, and like, like several dogs like pounce on it. If Yeah, I mean, I would say that the sort of food history of the medieval period is maybe the olden times thing that interests me oh, the most. In my head, it's all in black and white. Whenever you say olden times, it's like they <laughs> exist in black and white as well. They in- invented using area. a knife at the table like 100 years before anyone thought to introduce a fork. Weird. So everyone was just like <laughs> stabbing their food with a knife and then putting their knife in their mouth, I assume. I did not. But like, surely that would make more sense. Like, that would be the most logical. Like, we just need like a spear and then prod it in our mouth. But the fork And everyone's awesome. really drunk anyway, if you're shit-faced. Yeah. Were they drunk most of the time? Like, um, well, to live in a time where anxiety wasn't an issue. There's the famous, I don't know if it's true or not, but that Viking society, uh, the mead was safer to drink than water. Mm. Right. There's a I few... think that is true right up until... like Fairly recently. Yeah, not, not that long ago. Because typhoid yeah. was like huge in the 1812. There's, typhoid, was it? There's a stereotype amongst monks... And I, I don't know if they, this is like their drinking culture or something, but uh, the Northumbrians were quite prolific drinkers. Mm. Uh, there's a saint's miracle where the Northumbrians turn up at the monastery and everyone's really worried that they're going to run out. But the, <laughs> they, no matter how much the Northumbrians drink, they, the ale just keeps on pouring. <laughs> and that's, that's a pretty cool saint's miracle. I want one. Yeah, that is top tier miracle. So this is it. I hope you enjoyed that. I just want to thank once again our guests, Chris, Rosie, Adam, Guillaume, Caroline and John. As I said, I will leave links to their full episodes in the description. Thank you for listening. And as usual, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or you can email us at NSFP Podcast at gmail.com.
Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom. <laughs>